for grace. Uh, the first, uh, first two chapters of the book were kind of an introduction, and Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter, his sort of personal history, the, the doctrinal theological meat of it was in chapters 3 and 4. And in chapter 5, which we begin here today, begins the, the section of exhortation, uh, a lot of the implications of the things that, that we've looked at thus far, uh, or what we're going to begin to look at today. This series has been all about grace. Fighting for grace. We said fighting because the Apostle Paul had kind of an aggressive tone uh, throughout the letter. Uh, He softened up a little bit in what we looked at last week. He's going to get aggressive again uh, today. And what is on Paul's mind is grace. Grace is the idea uh, of unmerited, undeserved favor or blessing or kindness from God. Specifically, grace has with it the idea that you could be made right with God and adopted with God, not because you did anything good or bad, but because of what Jesus did on a cross and uh, that you could, you could have grace. We've said along the way that grace is counterintuitive. The whole world seems to operate on a, you, you get what you deserve, you reap what you sow, grace changes, changes that around. And so I wanted to share a story that I think kind of illustrates um, the, the, how radical grace is um, and, and really how foolish trusting in your own works is. Uh, and this is a story told by Tullian Chivijan, uh, and he tells it like this. There was a man who died and went to stand before St. Peter at the pearly gates. Do you love stories that start like this? By the way, just in case there's any confusion, you aren't going to die and then stand before St. Peter at the pearly gates. Right? Do you get that? You know that that's true? You will die and stand before Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He won't ask a lot of questions because he already knows. And so it's just a story, okay? He dies and he stands before St. Peter, and, and St. Peter tells him some new information that he didn't know. He says, uh, in order to get into heaven, you have to have a thousand points. The guy goes, I've, this is news to me. Um, he says, well, what have you done? Let's hear. Let's see how many points you can get. And so he goes, okay, well, um, I was raised in a Christian home, and I, uh, and I went to a Christian high school and Christian college and uh, started a Bible study with some people in the neighborhood nearby where our college campus was and saw a bunch of people come to faith in Christ from that. Uh, I served on a number of kind of summer mission projects. After I got married and, and had kids, I started a business, and that business employed lots of different people, and I ran it with integrity and with honesty and always tried to you know, be, be one of the best employers in my community. I was really involved in the church. I helped start a couple of different churches where I was kind of on the, the planting team of a few churches that started, and I've always been really serious about the work of God and equipping other people. I, I've discipled hundreds of men. I've probably led a couple hundred people to Christ just by doing Bible studies and and sharing my faith with them. Um, And and I've always tried to give sacrificially. And the Bible says you should give at least 10%. And so uh, I made it my goal to give 10% and then try to give more and more. And at the time here of my death, I I was giving about 30% of my income to, to kingdom work. Um, tried to do a good job raising my family. Uh, I've got two kids, uh, or th- three kids, two sons, one daughter. W- one son, he's a, he's a pastor and just a really godly guy. And the other one uh, started a nonprofit organization for marginalized people. Uh, it's caught up in, in, uh, in poverty and just a really you know, incredible kid. And then my daughter, she married a missionary from Africa. And he goes, how am I doing? And St. Peter goes, that's one point. And he says, Lord, have mercy. Peter says, that's exactly right. Welcome in. <laughs> right? That's, that's, that's grace. You, you want to heap up all your stuff? Here's what I've done. Look at me. Aren't I a good boy? Aren't I a good girl? You want to break your arm, patting yourself on the back? There's no place for you in the kingdom of God. This is about grace. You are made right with God by, by mercy, by by grace. In the book of Galatians, the issue at hand uh, was, uh, was adopting the Jewish ceremonial laws. For us, it's not the same kind of thing. Right? They were talking about uh, should they accept circumcision, should they eat kosher food, uh, some of those things. For us, it's different. It's church attendance, it's Bible reading, it's money, it's all those things that we think, I've got to volunteer this much, etc. 
It's a different kind of thing, but in Galatians, that's what was going on. And uh, some commentators have speculated, we don't know this for sure, but they've speculated that part of the reason why perhaps uh, the false teachers that came to Galatia and gave this Jesus plus your good works message, Jesus plus circumcision, is, is perhaps because they've speculated that the Galatians had, had become Christians, but had kind of gone too far into license, said, well, if, if we're saved by grace and if, if Jesus will just forgive me, then we can, I can do anything I want. And so they, it maybe led them into a moral living, some commentators speculate. And, and so they kind of already realized, we got to get back on the straight and narrow. And so perhaps it's that these false teachers then came in and said, yes, you do need to get back on the straight and narrow, and it's Jesus plus. So perhaps this, this had a, a sense of authority to them or a sense of intrigue to them. And so Paul, who started this church in Galatia, has written this whole letter to say, no, no, it's not Jesus plus. Anything that's Jesus plus is enslaving you. And so in this book, especially in this chapter, we get this idea of freedom. Freedom really could be the banner that flies over the entire book. It could be the theme of the book. And this theme runs throughout the whole course of this book. So, for instance, look at uh, Galatians chapter 1 in verse 4. It says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Deliver us means to take us out of slavery, to rescue us out of slavery. It's the idea of rescue or redemption. Chapter 2, verse 4. Talks about these false brothers who were secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Legalists always want to do that. They want to bring you under slavery to them. You got to follow my rules. They want control, they want power, they want influence. That's not freedom in Christ. Galatians 3, verse 23. Just kind of keep going through here. There's other, there's other places that discuss this, but, but uh, it says this. Uh, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Paul says that we're, we're slaves if, if we try to live under the law because we can never fulfill it. We can never obey it. If you're going to try to obey any of the law, you've got to obey the whole thing. You can't. You're a slave. You're held captive. You need to be rescued. So he says in chapter 4, verse 3, in the same way also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to free them, to deliver them. Same kind of idea. So this, this freedom thread runs throughout this book. It's a major theme, and it's a major theme, as you see in chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 15. It shows up four times, twice in verse 1 and twice in verse 13. It says in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. And in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, perhaps the, the, these false teachers had a hearing with the Galatians who had drifted into too much license and it, it, Great, we get grace, I'll just keep doing whatever I want. Perhaps that's the case. And Paul in this passage is going to correct both. In verse 1, he's going to say, don't lose your freedom to these legalists. And in verse 13, he's going to say, and don't abuse your freedom by drifting into license and thinking you can just do whatever you want. So what I want to do with this passage, especially because it, the way this passage is structured, uh, verse 1 is kind of like a hinge from the, the past section into this next one. And, and verse 1 and verse 13 feel like they're kind of a, a train of thought with this chunk in the middle, uh, verses 2 through 12, where Paul goes kind of back into circumcision. So what I want to do is try, try to move just quickly through the passage, and then I want to focus on what I think seems to be Paul's most important point in this chunk, which is verses uh, 13 through 15. We'll spend an extended time looking at some things from that um, at the end. So let's look at this. Verse 1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom. The reason Christ has set us free was for freedom. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say, For the glory of God Christ has set us free. Though that's true. 
He doesn't say, for you being a light to the nations, Christ has set us free, though that's also true. He says, for freedom. Freedom is a major part of what it is to be a follower of Christ because everyone is naturally a slave. You are a slave to whatever you live for. Whatever is your personal bottom line, whatever is your center, whatever is your idol, whatever gives you worth and meaning and value and identity, you're a slave to it. And Christ has come to free us from that. So he says in verse 1, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't lose your freedom. Don't go down that road. Stand firm. These people want to bring you into, uh, into their rules, into their laws. Specifically, they want you to accept circumcision. Don't do it. Don't submit to that kind of slavery. You are called to be free. Don't be a slave. Verse 2. Look. Paul gets as direct as he can. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So what's going on here is is the Galatians, you know, they've been hearing sort of both sides of the argument. They've heard from Paul, it isn't Jesus plus, it's Jesus only. You can only be made right with him. Trust in him, he's enough. And they've heard from these false teachers, it's Jesus plus circumcision. Now, in case you're, not, uh, you're newer to the Bible or whatever, that, that's great. We're glad you're here. Circumcision is, like, even just mentioning it's like, what is he talking about? Like, what did you invite me to? You're thinking about, you know, your, your friend. Circumcision, it, it matters in the Bible because circumcision was this, the Old Testament sign of, of the covenant. It was the symbol that if you were a follower of God, uh, you would accept this, uh, this sign. It was, it was given to the nation of Israel. It was given to Abraham. And, uh, and so these, these false teachers are saying, yeah, 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 Jesus, Jesus, whatever. But Jesus plus circumcision. Paul says no. And, and so some people are, are, are thinking about this. And uh, this is a once in a lifetime decision. Right? I mean, you make this call you've you've made the call right you choose to do this and 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 Paul listen just so you understand uh, he'll say later circumcision uncircumcision that's not the point the point is he's saying if you're going to go through with this what you're saying is that you're relying on that in order to be made right with God he says uh, verse four you are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law justified you're trying to be made right with God by your circumcision if that's your goal no it's interesting in Paul's ministry, I don't have time to get into all of this, but some of the companions of Paul, uh, he mentioned, uh, I think, Titus earlier in the book, not circumcised, but a, a Gentile, not, not circumcised. Uh, Timothy, who goes to do a lot of ministry, Timothy, interestingly, if you look at Acts 16, was probably a Galatian. And Paul has Timothy circumcised, even though he goes, this is no big deal, only so that he would be more effective in reaching Jews. So circumcision, uncircumcision, is not, not really the point. The point is Paul's saying, if, you, if you're, if you're going to do this because you think it's going to earn you something, it isn't. Christ will be of no advantage to you. He says, verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul says, I testify again, because he said this in chapter 3, verse 10. In 3.10, if you flip back there, he says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Key word is rely. Are you relying on this? What are you relying on for your good standing with God? If you're relying on works of the law, if you're relying on circumcision, you're under a curse. Why? For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. He says that you do this, you're obligated to keep the whole law, which you can't do. He's just laid out two chapters of how you can't do that. All the law is going to do is be like, a, be like a, a don't touch the wet paint sign that's just going to make you want to touch it. You're not going to be able to resist. You're not going to be able to stop. As a result, interesting play on words here, verse 4 
you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. One of my, uh, one of my spiritual gifts is sarcasm. It's actually more like a spiritual curse. Because I tend to use it uh, to be mean-spirited, to be arrogant. Um, a lot of times you know I'm walking the flesh when I'm just kind of popping off sarcastically. But there is a place for sarcasm to make a point. And you see that in the Bible a number of places. There's a place in the book of Job where Job is experiencing incredible suffering and he's kind of going to God, how could you do this? I, I deserve better than this. God, I'm not sure you understand how to run the universe. And God's like, hey, Job, um, I forgot. Can you remind me? Where do we keep the snow? Oh, you don't, you don't, you don't know. Oh, yeah, that's right. You don't know anything about how the universe runs. Why don't you just keep quiet? And at the end it says, Job humbled himself. He said, I, I, I'm not God. There's another place in 1 Kings where Elijah is squaring off against the prophets of Baal. And uh, they're having a contest to see whose God is going to show up. And the, the Baal is not showing up. And so Elijah mocks them. And he says, where's your God now? Is he using the bathroom? What's he doing? You know, and, and there's kind of this, there's the same kind of thing here. Paul is, is being sarcastic here. He's going to use a couple of different places where there's going to be words with kind of double meanings that are, that are sarcastic and trying to make a point about how futile it is to trust in circumcision, to trust in law. So we see the first one in verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You want to sever your foreskin because you're relying on that to be made right with God? Here's what you're doing. You're severing yourself from Christ. You'll fall away from grace. It's a warning saying, don't, don't, don't do that. Why? Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul, throughout this whole book, and he begins, to, he begins even more to talk in chapter 5 about life with the Spirit. Next week, we'll look at walking in the Spirit and keeping step with the Spirit and, and uh, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The life of the Spirit is a contrast in the book of Galatians to relying on the law. And he says, through the Spirit... By faith, by God's power working in us, we're waiting for the hope of righteousness, which is Christ. He's enough. He's enough for us. In fact, I want to give you um, a verse. It's Romans chapter 7, verse 6. This really could kind of fly. Um, if it weren't in the book of Romans, it would be a great theme verse for the book of Galatians. Um, but here's what it is. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Same exact, I mean, that's exactly what he's talking about in this book. We're released from the law, it's not holding us captive, but now we serve in the new way of the spirit. We trust in the spirit. Why? Verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. We're back in Galatians now. So here's what he's saying circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter. The issue is not about the circumcision. The issue is about what is your heart relying on? Right, so there are some who say, I'm relying on circumcision to make me right with God in addition to trusting Christ. Paul goes, worthless. Some go, well, I'm not gonna be circumcised and I'm gonna rely on that, right? So what you have is you have people who rely on their religion and people who rely on their irreligion. Not like one of those fundamentalists. Well, that's fine. But is that what you're relying on? Or are you relying on Christ? Another kind of example we'll see in this is some people will base their whole identity on the fact that they're something because they make and, and spend money and have nice stuff. right? So some person will be like, it's, it's fine to have... The scripture says God gives us all things to enjoy, whatever. There's some people who will go, I'm going to buy a really nice car because I want to show people that I'm something. You ever know someone like this? Yeah, and, I, and they, their whole identity is based on this and whatever. And then you have other people who go, I'm going to drive a junker to show that I don't care about material stuff. Well, you care just as much. You just express it differently. He says, it, it doesn't matter. What matters is the heart. And, and what's about the heart? 
faith working through love. Circumcision is not the point. Uncircumcision is not the point. Religion, irreligion, it doesn't matter. What matters is Christ. Faith, trust in him, working itself out in love. Now Paul makes this exact same kind of point a couple different ways in the scripture and uses some different wording. So I, I, just, just, this is interesting. If you're taking notes, you might jot these down. Uh, he talks about this in Galatians 5. He says a very similar thing in Galatians 6. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So what you see there is th- these ideas are parallel in Paul's mind. A new creation, when you're a new creature in Christ, when God has made you alive by his spirit, you have faith that works itself out in love. It doesn't matter what, these other things are irrelevant. You're trusting Christ, you're made new. You have new desire, you have new obedience, you have new love, you have new affection. But then he says this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says for, same kind of thing, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. If you've been here in this series, wait wait, wait a second. Sounds like legalism. Sounds like Paul's saying, what matters is you keep the commandments of God. That's all that matters. Faith in Christ, who cares? New creation, who cares? Contradiction, I knew it. Bible's filled with errors. Well, when we put these verses together uh, and we look at all of Paul's teaching, what we see is that when you're a new creation, you're given, you, have, you have a new faith, a new love, a new heart, and that doesn't work itself out in being selfish. It works itself out in keeping the commandments of God. See, a, a Pharisee, a legalist, a hyper-religious person And a genuine biblical Christian will both keep the commandments of God. The question is why? One will do it because they're relying on it to earn something. The other one will do it because they've been made new and they have a new heart, a new faith, and they just love God. And if you love him, you keep his commands. In Christ Jesus, circumcision, uncircumcision, it's faith working through love. Then he says in verse 7, another play on words here. He says, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So the picture here is, is that Paul is saying, you were in a race and someone hindered you. They literally cut in. Right? So circumcision is the idea of cutting around. Now he's talking about cutting in. Any of you run races? A few? Any hands? If you're brave, run, run. some of you have done this. If you've got a few triathletes here. I, I've actually, I've run a few races, believe it or not. Done, you know, some 10Ks and half marathons and stuff and don't really recommend it. Um, <laughs> but, but what you want to do if you're going to run one of these is you want to, especially at the, at the beginning of the race, you want to get way in the back. Right? You want to let all the crazy people <laughs> go for first. And the reason for that is because, you know, when it goes off, they, they all go and, and people cut in on you. They get in your way. They hinder you. They, cu- they cut you off, right? It's just like when you're driving. You hate when someone cuts in. They cut in. They, they don't even wave, right? It makes some of you so mad. Like, who, who cares? But you get really mad. Cut, cut in. Saying, who got in your way? You were going well. But again, it's another play on words. He, he said, this idea of cut around cut in. He says, verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This doesn't come from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's a reference to the idea that false teaching has a way of sort of sneaking in subtly and then spreading sort of like leaven does through a a loaf of bread. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. He'll face judgment. He'll stand before the Lord. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul's saying, when you, when you preach circumcision, you remove the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive because it tells you you're worthless and vile and wicked and evil. You have neglected God 
And you have actually done things to dishonor God. And there's nothing you could do that could make it up to him. That's offensive, isn't it? I mean, when you share that message with people who think they're good, don't they like go, you're really narrow-minded. It's offensive to say there's only one way, and it's Jesus. You need to abandon all hope in yourself. Anyone can just keep a bunch of rules, check list, feel good. Not if you believe the gospel. So then he says, verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is not such a play on words. This is a little bit more clear. Right? So there was cut around, cut in on, sever. This is cut off. This is mutilate. This uh, same Greek word is is used in the... the, um, translation of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 23. It talks about someone whose male organ has been cut off, that they're not able to worship in the assembly. A lot of times this would be like a eunuch, right? And so there's an there's a amazing place in the book of Acts where Philip uh, goes to this Ethiopian eunuch who's despairing because he can never know God. And he realizes that in Christ he actually can be made new. Because if you're a eunuch, you, you couldn't have access to the temple, you couldn't have access to God, you were cut off from your people. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I wish you would just go the whole way. Don't just trim a little. Go all in. Because what's happening is these, these Judaizers, I hope you get the importance of this point. These Judaizers are saying, this is the very thing that will make me acceptable to God, that will make me one of his children. And Paul says, if you accept that, Galatians, listen, if you accept this, you will be severed from Christ. You will be cut off. You will become a eunuch. You will not be, a, you will not be acceptable to God if you are trusting in this. So he's saying, I wish they would just emasculate themselves and then it would be very clear that they're not acceptable. Do you get it? I wish they would just go the whole way. I think this makes an interesting point that the Bible nowhere is okay with kind of mediocre followership. Like there's no kind of halfway following Jesus. Halfway trusting him. It's all or nothing. Paul's going one way or the other, go all in. It's not a mediocre thing. And then he goes back to this issue of freedom. And so this is where I want to focus on a few things that we see in, in these verses. The first one is, is freedom. In verse 13 he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. It's very similar to, to verse 1. Then here's what he says, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the argument would go, I'm free from the law. I don't have to obey the law in order to be made right with God. I'm free from that. I can do whatever I want. Let us sin that grace may abound, is the kind of idea. So in verse 1, Paul said, don't lose your freedom. Stand up. Stand firm. Don't let anyone take it. Verse 13, he says, don't abuse your freedom. There's two ways to fall off the horse. Legalism is one. License is the other. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul here is redefining our idea of freedom. See, when when freedom is, now I can do whatever I want, and I'm going to do whatever I want, then it's no longer freedom. Right? Think about this for a moment. If you have to do whatever you want to do, and anyone gets in your way, anyone blocks you, you get mad. You have to, you go, well, it's because I'm free. I, I'm free to do what I want. You're not free, you're a slave. If you're a slave to your own freedom, you're not free. And you're especially not free to do the very things that God called you to do and that God made you to do. 
We have a, a group of, of pastors and leaders from within our Redemption Church movement, and we get together every week for a thing we call the Preaching Collective. All the guys that are preaching and then some of the other young guys who are being developed and aspiring preachers or just want to participate. And we will share ideas. If you go and you listen to all four messages, you'll see they're very different. Uh, they, you know, each guy writes his own sermon. But we share ideas and kind of bounce stuff off each other. And at the, at the one preparing for this message, uh, Ricardo Stewart, who's the lead pastor at our Tempe congregation, he said something, and we all, everyone just went, hold on, hold on, say that again. We've got to write, write this down. And here is what Ricardo said. He said, apart from the gospel, you're free to do everything except what you were made to do. What were you made to do? We are made in God's image. God is generous. God is love. God is giving. You're made to do those things. And apart from the gospel, you, you can't really do them. Even if you do them, you often do them for selfish reasons. I give myself away because that makes me feel good about myself. <clears throat> selfish. Right? And so, and so the gospel gives you the ability to do what you're made to do. And apart from that, you're welcome to do anything you want. You can sit all you want. You can... But apart from the gospel, you, you can't do what God made you to do. And so Paul's redefining freedom. He's saying it's not an opportunity for the flesh. It's not an opportunity for you to just do whatever you want. It has to have some focus. And that focus is service and love. Right? It, just pure freedom with no direction doesn't really lead you somewhere good. Right? Did, did any of you ever see the movie Castaway? With Tom Hanks, right? He, he goes down in a crash, and he's on this island. He's all by himself. Total freedom, right? No responsibilities. No one to impress. No one to please. He can do whatever he wants. And what happens? He goes crazy. He, he, he goes nuts. His best friend becomes a volleyball. It's because the, a human being is made to use his or her freedom to imitate God. See, I think, I think until, we, until we get this, what happens, and this is especially true in men, uh, men who are going, I, I don't really know what I'm called to do. There's a lot of responsibilities I have. There's a lot of things in my life that people expect me to do. But what am I called to do? I don't know if a lot of people know. I don't know if a lot of guys know that. Women too, but guys especially. You're called to, through love, serve one another. You're called to pour yourself out as an image bearer of, of God in the name of Jesus for other people. That's what you're called to do. And until you realize that, you'll go, well, I've got freedom. And you'll bounce from hobby to hobby and, and thing to thing and sin to sin. And, and, and listen, I know guys who go, I... I, I get involved in a lot of different stuff, that's kind of my personality, that's fine, but, but do you have an aim? Do you have a focus? Are you just trying to fill life with something to do? Paul's saying, here's, here's our aim. You're going to be a disciple of Christ? Here's, here's what it, this is about. Through love, serve one another. So let's look at that. We, we've looked at freedom. Let's look second at servanthood. Servanthood. That's what is being uh, called for here. And interestingly, this idea is really the idea of enslaving yourself to somebody. So he says in verse 13, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, here's what it literally translated would say, but through love become slaves of one another. Now, think, think about verse 1 and verse 13 together. Verse 1, he said, you're called to freedom, stand firm, don't submit to slavery. Don't let any external thing enslave you. And in verse 13, he says, you're called to freedom, so of your own will, out of love, enslave yourself to the good of others. One is external, one is internal. One comes from outward religion. One comes from an inward heart change. Through love become slaves of one another. Take on a whole new identity. 
Take on the identity of a servant. Say, the reason I'm here, the reason I am in this house, the reason I am in this job, the reason I am in this gym, the reason I am everywhere is to be a servant. That is one of my fundamental identities as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Christ. If you're going to be a disciple, our job is to make disciples, to help you grow as disciples. Jesus said when a disciple is fully trained, he'll be like his master. Your core identity as a disciple is to be a servant. You want to see what Jesus was like? Look at Mark 10, 45. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is saying Jesus, even though he had everything, became a servant. And he served those who didn't deserve it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's in the nature of Jesus to serve. Therefore, it should be in the nature of his people, his followers, his disciples, to serve. But here's the thing. The scripture doesn't just call us to serve. It calls us to take on the identity of a servant. There's a difference, right? Anyone can serve. Like, I'm asked to help out with something. Hey, I'm moving. Would you help me? Sure. Uh, anyone can serve. Hey, 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 we got this need. Can you, can you pitch in and make a difference here? Yeah. But a servant is one who looks for it. A servant is one who initiates it. A servant is one who, who looks, walks in a room and doesn't think, how can this environment meet my needs? But thinks, how can I meet needs here? That's what it is to be a servant. Here's here's two kind of test questions to see if you have the identity of a servant. Can you joyfully serve people who don't deserve it? If you can't, you're not a servant. At least a servant like Jesus is. Jesus loved a people undeserving. That's us. And so if, if you can only serve in, in places where you're already kind of in a servant relationship, you can't serve people that you're better than, that you're smarter than, that you have more prestige than, you're not a servant. Here's a second question. Can you joyfully serve even when people treat you like a servant? How do you treat a servant? Do you throw them a party? Big award banquet for them? No, you don't even usually say thanks. Okay, thank you. Doing your job. Can you still joyfully serve in those cases? Now, listen, as followers of Christ, we should give affection, we should give appreciation, we should give give that to whom it's due. But what happens when when you don't get that? Can you still joyfully serve? If not, you're not really a servant. I want to I apply this for just a moment and talk about this in a place where I know in, in my life I've felt a lot of the tension of this identity as a servant, and that's in, in marriage. Um, I'm selfish. Those who know me well know that very clearly. If you, if you think, man, Luke's such a great guy, you just don't know me very well. And so... So I, I, I mean, my flinch, like most people, is to think me first. God is, God is growing me that, in that. I'm, as I mature as a disciple of Christ, I'm becoming increasingly focused on other people, but I'm not inclined that way. And so one of the tensions in, in my marriage is uh, my lack of initiative on important things that need to happen in our home. Some of it might relate to cleaning, you know, picking up clothes, picking up things, you know, leaving stuff around. Interestingly, I can't stand stuff like that here. Like when I'm in this building and I see like stuff laying around, it drives me crazy. I have to pick it up. And at home I see stuff and I don't. 
I think, ah, eh, someone else will get this. Who's, who's the someone else? It's my wife, right? Um, th- this, this has to do with all kinds of other things about being a servant. You know, get up early to, to care for the kids. Uh, um, have an opportunity to, to take the kids somewhere so that your spouse can have time by herself. If, uh, here I'm talking to guys. Um, initiate discipline. I mean, it just could, it, it, all sorts of responsibilities that you would have in a marriage, in a household that really are, come down to uh, me as a husband laying myself down and taking on the identity of a servant. I, I've had times where I've struggled with that. And so in the past, what would, what would really happen a lot, or not, not a lot, but when it happened, it would, this is how it would go down, is I would be kind of in this selfish place and um, Guys, you're going, just, just ask. I'll help if you just ask. And ladies, you're thinking, what? All, all together now, I don't want to have to ask. I shouldn't have to ask. You should just see it, right? And so I, I'm, I'm not seeing it. And what would happen is, is Molly would, would see it. And do a couple of things. Um, Nag, uh, be sarcastic, right? I mean, we, and, and this is not in her nature. This would not happen very often. She's not here. I probably shouldn't confess her sin. <laughs> but, but this is how this would go, right? I, I'd, I'd be selfish. She, you know, she'd try to kind of manipulate me into doing what needed to be done, right? And we realized, like, this, none of this honors Christ, right? So, so we got to a point where, where I said to her, we had this conversation. I said, honey... I am selfish, and I think about myself a lot. She's like, I've been married to you for 10 years, I know. Um, but, but here's the thing. I really do want to serve. I really do want to be a servant. I really do want to help out. And so, um, but when you, when you nag and when you, like, that just makes me want to do it less, right? And it turns into this passive-aggressive game, right? And I don't like that, and I don't think that honors Christ. And so, so, here, here's, here's what we'll, can, can we do this? Here's a proposal. How about if I do whatever I can to initiate? And I will try to do better, and, and I hope you'll see growth, and I think by God's grace, she would say there's been some growth there. And, but when I don't see it, and when I'm not being a servant, will you just ask? And don't do it in kind of a, could I, baby? Just, just say, hey, could you do this? Because I, I, I want to. And I won't get defensive. And I won't, I won't yeah, but. And can we just do that? And we've started to do that. And I tell you, there, there's freedom there and there's joy there. And, and, and a lot of it happens because we both love Christ. We want to honor him. We want to please him. And we love each other. We're on the same team. Right, some of you are in a are in this cycle in your in your marital relationship where it's just constantly game playing and one upsmanship and I will if you will and who's going to blink first? That's stupid. You're not adversaries; you're teammates. But you've got to humble yourself and you've got to embrace this identity of I want to be a servant. I'd love to get to the point where she never has to ask. That ain't going to happen. <laughs> And so one of the ways she's going to serve me is by asking. And we're going to be able to communicate on that. I hope that's just a helpful little side application of this. But if you don't, if you don't see servanthood, especially in light of your most important, closest relationships, you're, you're totally whiffing. Some of you, you will serve wonderfully at work. You will serve wonderfully here. And your wife is going, I'd love to get half the effort you give at church at home. If that hurts, it's because it should. Servanthood. The next thing is love. This is the emphasis, right, is verse 13. Through love, serve one another. See, some people go, I love you. They just need to serve and show it. Other people are serving, but, but not doing it with an attitude of love, not doing it with a, with a loving heart. It's through love. Why is love so important? Well, look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
See, nowhere in this book has Paul said, disregard the law. Paul has said, what you need to understand is the depth of the law. And the depth of the law is not about kosher food and circumcision. It's about the weightier things. It's about love. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill the whole law. There is not a harder command in Scripture than this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you would expect him to say, the whole law is fulfilled in this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But Paul knows you can't love your neighbor as yourself unless you love God that way. Even more, unless you've been loved by God that way. Love, through love, serve one another. Love fulfills the whole law. See, love, um, well, I I can't say it better than Mike Shea says it in this quote. So here's Mike Shea. He says, we need to understand our battle with sin in the context of the command to love. The moral imperative of the Christian life is not just stop sinning, but pursue love. And you can't do one without the other. You can't turn from flesh without turning towards other without turning towards serving others in love we are frequently frustrated in our struggle with sin because we oppose it in such a self-centered way we hear ourselves talking about my struggle and my sin and my victory and my defeat and my sanctification the way my sin makes me feel bad about myself we're stuck in a quagmire of selfishness we need to think rather about how our sin keeps us from loving others And then turn from sin by turning toward others in love. We say this a lot. The opposite of love is not hate. It's selfishness. And and so this is a whole reorientation of our heart. It's not a checkbox and let me keep the rules. It's, It's a whole new desire. John Piper says it this way magnificently. This is in your study guide if you have one of the study guides. He says, we love other people when we stop using them as a means to supply our deficiencies and instead rejoice in the divine enablement for us to supply their deficiencies. What are you doing in your relationships? Are you just using other people to fill in your deficiencies? You know what that is? That's verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, right? This is just consuming Watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Are you in relationships to use people or to bless them? To see a divine opportunity to bless. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Piper continues. He says, love your neighbor as yourself is not a command to love yourself. Can we say that again? I've heard some people say, i got to love my neighbor as myself. i got to love myself first. No. I, I get where that comes from. Where that get, comes from is a lot of times I've believed lies from the enemy about myself that aren't true. And what you need is to embrace a right identity of who Christ says you are in his word. But it's not about loving yourself more. You love yourself plenty. That is not the answer to, to selflessness and generosity is love yourself more. Piper says, it is a command to take your natural, already existing love of self and make it the measuring rod of your love for others. There is not a harder command in the Bible than this one. It means want to feed the hungry as much as you want to feed yourself when you get hungry. It means want to find your neighbor a job as much as you are glad you have a job. Want to help your fellow student get A's as much as you want to get A's. Want to help the person stalled on the freeway as much as you are glad you are not stalled on the freeway. Want to give the poor softball player a chance to play as much as you want to play the whole game. I don't know about that one. <laughs> Generally speaking. <laughs> right, but that's how, we, that's how we rationalize it, right? Love your neighbor yourself, eh, except this one. I don't really want to do that. Want to share Christ with your neighbor as much as you are glad you know Christ yourself. Use all the creativity and energy and perseverance to do good things for others as you use in doing good things for yourself. Can you imagine what the church would be like if we were all like that? Looking at the person to the right and to the left and feeling the same longing for their happiness that we feel for our own. That's love. You are called to freedom, brothers. Through love, serve one another. 
The last question is how? How do you do that? I mean, Piper said, there's not a harder command in the Bible than that. So how am I going to do that? Where am I going to get the strength? Where am I going to get the power to do that? What's well, by embracing who you are and what you have in Jesus? And to me, the best example of this is Jesus. So let's look at John chapter 13. Uh, John 13, uh, Jesus and his disciples are eating their last supper together. Uh, they've been walking a dusty road. They've entered a home. They're about to have a meal. And, uh, and they've all been walking in the dirty, dusty streets. And the common custom would be that the lowest person or the slave in the house would wash everyone's feet. Well, no one budges. They're, they're in the who's going to flinch first game. This is after three years of being with Jesus. This might have been a little frustrating for him. I mean, they're always arguing, who's the best, who's the greatest, I'm better than you. Guys. And so Jesus gets up, and he uh, puts a towel around his waist, and he washes the disciples' feet. Afterwards, he says, you should do this for one another. You should serve like I've served you. But this passage in the beginning of John 13 tells us, I think, some of the motivation and some of the power that Jesus accessed to do this, to serve these people who didn't deserve it. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus was empowered to serve because he knew he had everything. The Father had given all things into his hand. He had come from God. He was going back to God. He didn't need to prove that he was great in order to have something. He already had everything so he could serve. The same thing is true for us. If we will embrace the identity that we already have, that instead of trying to prove that we're better, and trying, instead of trying to prove that we deserve more, we can humble ourselves and serve. Paul has said in this book that we are sons of God, that we have been made right with God, that we have been adopted by God, that we are heirs of God. Ephesians 1 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We, this is true of us. Where will you get the power to serve people who treat you like a servant? Never say thanks. They never notice. They never appreciate it. Where will you get the power to serve those who don't deserve it? When you realize you have everything you need in Christ. When you realize that you have that because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection counted to you so that you are a son of God, an heir with God. That's where you'll get the power. Till you embrace that identity, you'll never be able to do it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. God, I, I love your word, and I love um, the opportunity for us to, 